Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. What is up on a Wednesday? I'm Brian Scott Rippey. My co-conspirator, as always, is Colin Brister. We appreciate you hanging out with us on this Wednesday, September 18th edition of the Rebel Report podcast. The feed's been polluted a little, I say polluted, been kind of blown up a little bit. I've had a couple golf podcasts that we put on the feed. Just one, there's real no good place to put them other than that. I did the podcast. This is like... Like that is technically like my podcast channel. There would be another place to put it, but I had I talked to Will Bardwell, who is a Jackson golf blogger, uh, on yesterday previewing the Sanderson Farms, and then I just dropped one with Braden Thornberry on life as a professional golfer. What's kind of next with his schedule, his aspirations this week, teeing it up in a PGA Tour event as he kind of tries to to find his footing as a professional golfer. So go check those out if you're into that Sanderson Farms cool event getting bigger and bigger. Jackson's PGA Tour stop. Um, big ass chicken trophy, pretty sweet deal. Anyway, we got a pretty uh, loaded show today. I've got Jackson Moore who covers Cal for the two four seven side out there. Got into it with him about a lot. Of, I say got into it. We got into a lot of stuff. We did not fight um, about a lot of different stuff. You know, Cal's offense, their secondary, a lot of cool, interesting stuff. Uh, really appreciate his time. Uh, what's up? Not much, not much. I'm sitting in a McDonald's in Ridgeland, Mississippi, uh, to record this. So that's that that's that's the links we go to for for the people here. Yeah, it's uh it's been an interesting week. I've um I'm doubling as a golf writer analyst this week, so like <laughs> I've done a ton of podcasts. I'm hoping to write a couple more stories with Ole Miss Cal today because this is undoubtedly the biggest game of Ole Miss's season. I mean, we talked about it some on Monday. Look, if they lose this game if Ole Miss loses his game, I was thinking about it last night. I don't know what you sell the rest of the year. Because, one, if you lose this game, there's no path to a bowl. I mean, barring something just obscene, there's really no realistic path to a bowl game. This team's path to a bowl this year, as it stands right now, is already razor thin. I mean, the Memphis game eliminate any margin for error if they lose to cal i don't know what they sell the rest of the year they're already having trouble getting people could have come to the games if you lose this and you're two and two headed to the funeral that'll take place in tuscaloosa next week what are you selling the rest of the way with four home games left in two months of season yeah and that's kind of what i was gonna you know intertwine this with look matt luke is not here uh he's not the elements football coach if he doesn't win the egg bowl in 2017 so personally that was matt luke's biggest game uh, for Ole Miss in this era, I, it's, you have to consider that this is probably the biggest game of his tenure, right? Yeah, I mean, that was said about the Memphis game, but at the same time, I would think this is, this was said about the Memphis game. And I don't necessarily think that was wrong either, but now you're three weeks later after losing the Memphis game, so this turns into it. I would say, yeah, because again, you already have, look, Arkansas, a win over Arkansas was never going to move the needle. Of course, a win over Southeastern Louisiana was going to do nothing. What Arkansas did was basically pull some people back into the boat a little bit in terms of like, it's like you're standing at the end of the plank and they're like, if you scrubs lose to Arkansas, I'm jumping <laughs> is basically what the temperature of the fan base was is if I'm gauging it temperaturally. Uh, yeah. So, because Arkansas is a very bad football team, but this is a game that kind of works both ways. It's one, I don't know if people jump overboard, but it'll just turn into apathy 
And two, you beat a ranked Cal team with a really good defense, and you garner a little bit of momentum. There's still a path to a bowl game. It not only works as a pull-people-back-in game, but then it's kind of like, okay, maybe some people can kind of get invigorated, a little bit interested again, because I can promise you from a metric standpoint, the interest is down. I mean, as far as, like, metrics, podcasting, reading, it's quite something. And so this will work both ways in that sense. That, like It's going to pull people back in some, but it also keep people interested over the next couple months. Because if you win this game, you're 3-1. and one. That's That was the goal for them to make it out of this first month at 3-1. and one. That was the only way you were making it to a bowl game. You have some games upcoming up where realistic people are going to understand you're going to lose at Alabama. You're going to lose to LSU. You probably don't have a great shot against A&M or Auburn, but there's winnable games left on the schedule that can get you a path to six wins. Again, that all gets erased if you lose because none of the rest of it really matters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they would have to play. I mean, the the path, first of all, to a bowl game with a loss this weekend, like you said, is almost non-existent. I mean, you would have to see a completely different football team over the last eight games. I don't necessarily expect to see that. So, yeah, I mean, this, this weekend, if you're talking about the, the program needing to get to a bowl game for relevancy, relevancy and, and rebounding and all of that jazz, then, yeah, this is a must-win. And, and, and I don't want to skate around that term. Like, Saturday is a must-win. And if you lose, you're kind of up a creek and the pressure starts to get real. Because, like you've mentioned, what are you selling for two months? Like, what is your program trying to accomplish over the next two months? Because, like we've said before, a bowl game at that point pretty unrealistic to put it in you know layman's terms it's already it's already teetering on unrealistic no, like I'm, I'm gonna they, disagree there i mean you they I, went on saturday they're gonna beat vanderbilt in my opinion they're gonna beat new mexico state they can win at starville or missouri no I mean, going two and oh in starville or missouri is a little bit unrealistic no we're, we're saying the same thing i'm just saying it's it, it's approaching on that because i guess it, unrealistic is a bad word it's right now still I would categorize it as a fairly tall ask. Sure. But sure. realistic. But to your point, if it, a loss, it, it teeters. I mean, it, it, it swings fully to they're not making a bowl game. And we've talked about this a bunch this year. It's not that Matt Luke necessarily has to make a bowl game. There's a way he could go 5-7 and seven and people would be kind of like, oh, okay, that wasn't disastrous. But a bowl yeah. game, as far as people kind of believing in him as a competent head coach and the momentum of the program, is a huge thing that he really needs to aspire to this year for a number of reasons. Number one, he doesn't really know who his boss is going to be in the next two years, and he doesn't know who his boss's boss is going to be in the next year or so. And so that's important for that because, again, five and seven, no real momentum in the program, two new guys that came in that don't know who you are and didn't hire you, that's not a good good thing job security wise but again all of that's big picture all of that's down the road they've got to beat cal and first and foremost they've got to be able to be better one blocking and two in the passing game Ole miss is going to be fortunate as you'll hear jackson Moore talk about in a second cal is very i don't want to say very weak their weakness is on the defensive line they're missing two new nose tackles that never really kind of showed up in fall camp they don't really know what's going on there he didn't really get into a lot of detail because like they're not there or they're not playing well they don't know if they're he made it sound like he didn't know if they were with the team type of deal <laughs> it is the way i read it i should have followed up on it but limited amount of time a lot of stuff to get to point being they've kind of had to convert some defensive ends to nose tackle not a lot of depth in the defensive line that will bode well for Ole miss but the problem after that is cal has a really good linebacking court and a, a really really athletic secondary um you can go to supertalk.fm and read my practice notes from yesterday. We talked to Jacob Peeler 
We talked to Matt Corral. Peeler was there and recruited a couple of these kids that are playing in the secondary as receivers. And yep. they've converted since, and so they're really long. They're really athletic. You know, you've got the Bynum kid. You've got Trayvon Beck, who Matt Corral knows, who I believe played at a nearby high school. They're really, really good. And so Ole Miss might catch a break up front. A very shaky, flimsy offensive line might be okay. But, again, they got whipped fairly good against Southeast Louisiana. Now, Southeast Louisiana blitzed out the wazoo. So that probably had something to do with it. My point being, Ole Miss should catch a little bit of alleviation in the immediate up front as far as the defensive line. But Ole Miss is going to have to throw the ball better because the way they performed in the passing game against Southeast Louisiana, three of those balls minimum were getting picked by Cal. Oh, absolutely. Did you know that, uh, and, and this is a little bit off topic, did you know Cal starts two kids from Mississippi on offense? Yeah, and Peeler recruited both of them there. Yeah, uh, Duncan and, and General Williams, I think, are the two. Yeah, one of them is out, and one of them plays but hasn't put up gaudy statistics. And I, I was looking it up this last night. I think I wrote about it in my practice notes, if you want to read it. I don't remember off the top of my head. But, yes, they have two Mississippi kids. Peeler got them both there. Again, wide receivers coach Jacob Peeler coached at Cal from 2013 to 2016 before coming to Ole Miss in 2017. So very familiar with them. Matt Corral was somewhat familiar with them. Talked about how he got kind of recruited by him. Didn't necessarily have like any disdain for the Cal program. Just a Southern California kid that didn't want to go to Northern California if he was going to stay there. But really, really athletic secondary. They pride themselves defensively. I was talking to our good friend Antonio Morales about the game yesterday because Antonio obviously covers USC. Very familiar with the Pac-12. He's a California. He must be real busy. Yeah, he is. He's a uh, California native. Cal kind of plays a game to where they play really good defense. They're very pedestrian offense, but they wait for opposing teams and in particular opposing offenses to kind of throw up on themselves and make mistakes. And if you're talking about Ole Miss, that's a very young mistake prone offense. Like if you want to talk about a team that fits the bill to fall into that trap, if you want to call it, Ole Miss definitely fits the bill there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you've got a quarterback that's, that's shown a propensity to turn the football over. You've got wide receivers that, that are inexperienced. You've got an offensive line that's not very good, frankly. And Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is absolutely what Ole Miss is. They're going to probably put the ball on the ground or throw it to them at some point. You've got to be able to overcome that because, like you said, they're a team that pounces on mistakes. They're not electric on offense, but they're not going to they're, – they're very well coached. They're going to take advantage of opportunities, and, and Ole Miss has got to either limit those opportunities or, or not give them at all if they're trying to get out of there with a win on Saturday. Yeah, and if Ole Miss doesn't mistakes off, make mistakes offensively, I think they'll be able to stay in the game because Cal is very pedestrian offensively. Sophomore quarterback Chase Garbers, I think they only completed nine passes last week, if I have that yeah, right. They're down two offensive linemen and a third one that's questionable, too. That is correct, and as you, you'll hear Jackson Moore to get into that in a second. So, beat up and battered offensive line. You know, Jackson Garbers, he's are, these are his three completion lines. Against UC Davis, 16 to 28 for 238, two scores and a pick. In the 20 to 19 win over Cal, 11 of 18 for 111, no touchdown, no picks. Last week against North Texas, 9 of 22, a touchdown, no picks, sacked six times. So you mentioned that offensive line getting battered. If North Texas registered six, ta- six sacks, I imagine Ole Miss will be able to get to him a little bit, which is good news for Ole Miss, although kind of like Ole Miss, for all of their offensive line troubles, Cal has run the football okay. They try to wear you down. They try to kind of hit you. They have a bell cow like Scotty Phillips in the, uh, what, Christopher Brown? He, he, he's beat up too now. Yeah, but then they got a couple kids behind them 
that are okay. And so Cal is going to try to run the football. They're going to try to be efficient and do just enough offensively, score in the low 20s, and just do basically what Cal is doing. And this sounds so cliched and so can, but it's true for how they play football. They're trying to do just enough, not make any mistakes, and be, be good enough for their defense to kind of carry them. I mean, you've got Christopher Brown, 65 touches, 324 yards, averaging 5 yards to carry. Marcel Dancy behind him, 23 touches, 132, 5.7 yards to touch. Eats have two touchdowns, two capable, competent backs. We mentioned the offensive line issues. I don't think Cal is going to overwhelm this defense because I've talked about it. I've said a ton. Look, you're going to know exactly how improved this defense is when they play an offense with the pulse. I wouldn't necessarily put Cal in that category. Yeah, well, I mean, and what Cal does well in running the football is not almost weaknesses. Cal was a team that was, you know, throwing for 450 yards a game. It'd be a whole lot different story. But uh, they're not. So they're going to line up try to run the football, and almost has had success against the run uh, from a defensive perspective. So I don't think Cal is going to come in and put up 28, 35 points. I think if Ole Miss scores 24 points on Saturday, I think they win the football game. Uh, I, I could be dead wrong in that, but I don't think we're going to see a 31-28 game. I think I think the winner of this game may score 21 to 24 points. I would agree with that, and I mean this game is going to be a grind, as as Jackson Moore pointed out. Because I was like, "How do you see this going?" I was like, "Yeah, this might be a sore one for the eyes, unless you like defensive <laughs> football." But in the in the, you talk about Ole Miss being better against the run. I agree in that sense that they tackle better and they don't give up as many chunk plays. But it's worth pointing out they have been susceptible against good running backs that, uh, as far as running between the tackles. For whatever reason, Mike Norvell stopped doing it. And we've talked we've talked well-documented. Chad Morris just got cute. Like, Rakeem Boyd was having a decent amount of success running between the tackles in the first half. So was Patrick Taylor of Memphis. But teams have stopped doing it. And while I think Ole Miss will fare okay against the run, it is worth pointing out that while they've had put up better numbers as far as yardage and yards per carry and all that, teams haven't exactly pummeled them between the tackles like I think Cal will try to do. Yeah, yeah, and and so the defense will have to stand up to that. I mean, because look, I don't think uh, Bowers is going to be able to beat them down the field by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, what he lacks in, in, in you know mobility and, and mobility, and he, he you know doesn't have an arm strength either. So. Uh, he, he's not a guy that's going to just beat you down the field. But they're going to have to run the football. I think Ole Miss is going to look. If Ole Miss's secondary can hold up in man coverage, I really don't think Cal's going to be able to score at will or, or score a ton of points. Frankly, because I think Ole Miss's front seven is good enough to to kind of put that run game to uh, you know put it in cahoots. And so I don't know. I, if I, I think the key to the game is who runs. Who has more yards per carry? Like, if you tell me Ole Miss runs for 4.8 yards a carry and Cal runs for 4.2, I think I can tell you pretty confidently that Ole Miss is going to win the football game. I think this pretty much comes down to who's able to run the football more successfully and control the clock and the line of scrimmage. I would agree with that somewhat, but it's also going to be on the offense playing. I mean, I hate it. This sounds like your typical Sunday night football, you know, Mike Mayock, Chris Collinsworth, keys to the game, whatever. Like, play mistake-free football because the way Ole Miss gets in trouble and loses this game, Matt Corral throws a couple picks. They put the ball on the ground twice, give Cal a short field, and that offense scores two touchdowns off a short field off turnovers the Cal defense creates. That's how Ole Miss loses this game or gets in an early hole and doesn't recover. Right. If if Ole Miss runs for more yards per carry and turns the football over less time than Cal, I think they win on Saturday. Yeah, they forced a lot of turnovers last week. I would say 
definitely turn it over less than Cal. That's the obvious. I would say turn it over two times or less. I mean, you get even that may be even too many. If they can get out of the game with one turnover or less, that will bode well for them. But you get multiple turnovers, give them a short field a couple times. You know, two turnovers in the wrong area of the field and Cal punches in for 14 points. For Ole Miss, as far as moving the football, that's a gigantic-ass mountain to climb. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, to, to think Ole Miss is going to walk in here and score five touchdowns, look, they might, um, but I'm not betting on that. So You haven't you know, seen anything that would suggest that. No, and, and I don't think people, you know, just from talking to some Ole Miss fans, I don't think they really understand how good Cal's secondary is. Because it's really easy to say, oh, this team's defense is really good against the run. And, you know, that's easy to see. It's hard to see when a team's secondary is as talented as Cal's. But I assure you, these corners and these safeties are going to make plays on Saturday that are going to befuddle you. Yeah, and Corral talked about it yesterday. He's like, they're not overly athletic, which I don't know how true that necessarily is because you got a couple converted receivers. You know, Trayvon Beck is a really good player. Bynum I thought he was is talking re- about the defensive line when he said that, but I could be wrong. Maybe that's what he was talking about. I don't know. I go in and out when I stick that video <laughs> camera up there. Uh, but point being, he's talking about how smart they are, and he thinks that makes up for a right. lot of stuff. But... I just kind of lost my train of thought here. Oh, uh, what I was getting to is if you thought Ole Miss had trouble creating separation against Memphis, these boys are in for a whole other other world here. Like the, these, these, this group from Cal is really good, really talented, and if these guys had trouble creating separation against Memphis, who, oh buddy? Now this ain't Memphis. Yeah, and uh, on top of that, they. Braylon Sanders was back at practice yesterday. You can read about that again at that practice report at SuperTalk.fm. He wasn't limited, at least as far as from contact. He was in a blue jersey. Peeler mentioned being smart with him. It sounds like he's going to play after missing the last two weeks with a hamstring injury. That's a big deal because I asked Matt Corral about it. I was like, how, how much does that change things? Because what I'll be writing about later today, what I meant to get out last night, but just haven't had the time with this golf tournament and stuff, is Ole Miss is waiting for a second and third receiver to emerge. They have really gotten not a whole lot behind Elijah Moore. I mean, there hadn't been a receiver record more than three catches in a game this season, other than Moore. And granted, Dontario Drummond's had a couple passes. I think uh, I think Peeler mentioned that he has had three catches get called back with penalties. But they haven't had a whole lot. Like Demarcus Gregory, Dontario Drummond, Miles Battle, Mingo, whoever you want to throw in that category, they haven't had a second reliable target. So, one, getting, I was about to say Vince Sanders, Braylon Sanders back helps that a lot. And I asked Matt Corral, and he said, yeah, it's just another guy that I trust out there. You know, Braylon Sanders and I hang out a lot on and off the field. We have a really good relationship, we have good chemistry. He's an older guy. I mean, the first thing Corral said is it's another guy I trust out there, which I thought was telling with regards to what he's been working with the last couple of weeks in terms of chemistry with the other guys. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So it's a guy that's been in the program for a while. You know, Corral was with him last year. was able to build chemistry when he got into games. Uh, Look, Braylon Sanders is huge. He He hasn't played really this year. I think he played two snaps against Memphis. Maybe he's that guy that can take some pressure off Elijah Moore. Ole Miss needs him, and they need somebody to go make plays in that that receiving court because if they don't, Saturday's got a chance to be miserable on offense. So, yeah, Braylon Sanders being back is, is remarkably huge for this team. Uh, they'll have to be smart. I mean, hamstrings aren't something to you know mess around with. But uh, I think you know any anything he can give them will certainly be a boost. 
Yeah, and that's going to be big. But again, even with Sanders back, Ole Miss needs a Mingo or a Drummond or, or like the even with Sanders back, I don't think you're going to keep the passing game afloat very long with just Elijah Moore and Sanders having two guys that are you know competent and 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 good and a slot guy and kind of a deeper threat in Sanders will help. But as much as Peeler has talked about wanting be a, be a deeper receiving core this year, and you know it's very obvious what they're replacing and how that transition has gone so far, they're going to need Mingo Drummond, Battle Gregory, two of those guys at least to be at least be competent threats. And it feels like Drummond's kind of close. Mingo's done a couple things. You haven't seen a ton from Battle or Gregory. They're close, but they need to kind of make another jump forward and become that if Ole Miss is going to have any success. And this week would be a good time to do it for Ole Miss because, again, you're going up against one hell of a secondary. That's about all the thoughts I had on that. Let's get to this Moore interview, excuse me, Jackson Moore interview and wrap up. I think he gave up, he gave a lot of good insight, talked about Justin Wilcox, about, you know, wasn't he overly successful as a defensive coordinator at USC? Rest of the resume looks pretty good. He's been a pretty damn good coach so far. A lot of other stuff. I think you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, here is Jackson Moore. All right, we now welcome on Jackson Moore. Jackson covers both Cal and Fresno State for the 247 site um, in the Berkeley area, I believe. Um, Jackson, how are you this morning? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. No problem. I uh, I, <laughs> I was trying to help you out as much as I could in the sense that you you were nice enough and willing to come on the show. Then I was thinking about the two-hour time difference, and I was like, I don't think I can ask him to get up at 6 in the morning his time. So <laughs> so we made it work somewhere in the middle. Um, but I figured that might be a good place to start. A lot of people have made a huge deal about the time difference and all that. And I went out there when Ole Miss played in 17, and it's a little different because it was a night game. I didn't think it was a huge deal. I think the huge more so than anything, if you want to call something an advantage or a factor, will play way more of a factor than the time. What are your kind of thoughts on that whole deal? Yeah, it's, you know, there's several factors to consider, and you know, I think people out there maybe don't quite realize people on the West Coast got to wake up about 8 a.m. to watch some college game day to catch the end of it, at 9 a.m. to watch some first round of football games and it very rarely includes the west coast team so uh 9 a.m pacific time kickoff is a little different for the fans i don't know if it'll necessarily affect the players all that much um you know obviously they have to get up not just for the kickoff but well ahead of time for all the preparation there's a good four or five plus hours that go into pregame so i think that's what gets the affects the team more than anything just having to get up that early to start the day um, you know, the heat is also pretty interesting. Berkeley is a, a kind of an odd place when it comes to weather. In the summertime, you're going to get cold evenings, and you know, kind of regardless of the time of year as well, it may not be the hottest temperature-wise, but the sun just kind of beats down pretty hard. Um, but there's no humidity. It's not like the, in the south. It's more of a, a dry heat, and just about anyone from California that goes down to the south is ready to complain about the humidity. So um, probably the humidity, I think, is what's going to play the biggest factor in, in how fast the players can get over that and adjust and try not to cramp up too much. I, for one, normally when Ole Miss plays a game, I can usually get a pretty decent feel for how I think it's going to go. The line when it comes out when Vegas releases it doesn't necessarily shock me. 
this one, I, one, have absolutely no feel, and the line baffles me. Because I honestly, if you had told me to guess last Saturday, I would have said, I don't know, Cal five-ish, six-point favorite. Cal opens as a small favorite, then it's kind of moved towards Ole Miss being a favorite. I guess I say all of that to say, just from a 10,000-foot view from, from people in Mississippi, what do you make of this Cal team? Because they had the huge win with the weird rain delay or weather delay at Washington, which I watched a piece of that because Ole Miss was playing Arkansas, and it came on at like 1 in the morning our time over here. But, you know, struggled with UC Davis, struggled a little bit with North Texas, kind of. What what do you make of this Cal team? Yeah, you know, they've played an FCS team, a group of five team, and a, a top 15 Pac-12 team. And just about all three of those games have finished with about the same final score or in the same ballpark, uh, scoring just over 20 points and holding opponents to just under 20 points. And that seems to kind of be the recipe with this team. Uh, the offense is just not very uh, high-powered. They really rely on the defense first, and it's just kind of a recipe where you have low-scoring games, and it can often come down to a handful of plays that make it go either way. And you know, even if Cal comes in ranked and maybe with a little more momentum than Ole Miss, it's the same rules apply for the most part. Um, you, know, you look at Cal, they, the, the defense is definitely what they hang their hat on. They've been very solid all season long. Uh, even the group of five and FCS team they played with North Texas and UC Davis had you know, really about the best quarterbacks of those tiers of college football that they could find. But um, you know, the Bears just keep as solid as they can be on defense and offensively there's just not a whole lot there they only completed nine passes and last week didn't win they're gonna go to the run game as much as possible and it's just again when you have a, a solid defense and you just kind of grind out the ball on offense uh, it can kind of go either way regardless of who you're playing and uh, this is just going to be another one of those games where whoever makes the, the four or five key plays i think is going to win yeah so it's, it's interesting you bring that up because I was talking to a buddy of mine who used to cover Ole Miss. He covers USC for the Athletic now, Antonio Morales. And he's fairly familiar with the Pac-12 he's from out there. And he was talking about how, yeah, like you said, obviously Cal very much so prides itself on his defense. And it's almost like they kind of play solid enough football and wait for the opponent to beat itself, which is kind of somewhat the recipe when you do have a good defense and a rather kind of pedestrian offense. I think that's an incredibly dangerous game for Ole Miss to get into because, one, while they've looked fairly improved defensively, it's a really young offense with a redshirt freshman quarterback in Matt Corral. They have, have all kinds of issues on the offensive line up front. They've been wildly inconsistent in the passing game. Of course, Cal has one of the best secondaries in college football. I think that's a dangerous game for Ole Miss to get into because, again, if you're waiting for the Ole Miss offense to slip up on its own, you know, I don't think it'll take a whole lot to do that, I guess is what I'm saying. So I guess we'll start with the secondary. Cal, obviously, very, very good secondary. Wide receivers coach Jacob Peeler was at Cal until 2016, recruited a couple of these kids as receivers who have since flipped to DBs. What makes this secondary so good? Well, they've got a really good defensive backs coach with Gerald Alexander, and I've just been blown away by him covering the team more recently, getting to learn about this Cal team. Uh, he's a younger guy, and he's kind of worked his way up. This is really his first big Power 5 job, and he's tried to been poached already a couple of times, but he's been pretty committed with this Cal team and developing this group. And He's done a really good job both developing the players that he's got 
and recruiting players. I mean, what I learned the most over fall camp was just how good even the second team has been on that defensive backs group. And they actually rotated what I would consider players maybe six, seven, and eight of that secondary in and out quite a bit last weekend. The, the game against again North Texas, who not the premier opponent on the schedule, but it was a, a pretty close game for the most part. They were willing to trust those guys. But they've got two athletes at safety that they know your guys. You can put on kick returns, punt returns, uh, that kind of dynamic athlete, and they just happen to be able to cover pretty well, too. And then on the corners, I mean, they've just been wiped out with man-to-man coverage. Um, they can put those guys in one-on-one coverage without feeling nervous at all. And then it's a 3-4 defense that's really aggressive up front. So they try to take advantage of the fact that they can put minimal coverage in the secondary and then attack you up front. Is it is it part of it, because we talked to Matt Corral yesterday after practice, and he mentioned he didn't think Cal was overly athletic in the secondary, but they're, they've got some length, particularly at corner, and they're really smart, which is, I thought was an interesting way for him to describe that. What do you think he means by that? Are they just well-schemed? You mentioned them being well-coached. They just don't make a lot of mistakes, it sounds like. Yeah, very rarely do they make a mistake. Um, and, yeah, as far as uh, the dimensions of the players, there's not a, you know, you don't quite look at anyone necessarily and say that's an NFL guy, perhaps, but um, the speed, at least at the safety positions, is top-notch, and then just the discipline and the coverage abilities in the corners have been fantastic. Um, you know, they've I think they've all kind of fed off of each other to to really be kind of the pride of this team. They're the ones getting all the publicity nationally, and uh, they really pride themselves on that group, and they just keep improving together. It's really not been just one guy that stands out or anything. It's just a, a really cohesive unit from first team to second team. Looking at the numbers, Cal defensively at least has been – a little bit susceptible to the run and giving up some chunk plays. I, if For all of Ole Miss's issues on the offensive line, they have found a way to run the ball with somewhat consistent success, and I think that's mostly because they have a fairly diverse and dynamic backfield. Kind of the senior guy that spearheads most of the load is Scotty Phillips, but they got a five-star kid in Jerry Neely as a freshman, and then another freshman in Snoop Connor, who's come in at the end of games and, and worn teams down a bit. What do you make of Cal's front seven? How have they fared through the first three games? So at linebacker, assuming everyone's healthy, uh, they have a pretty good group there, too. I would say it's not too far behind the secondary, to be honest. They've got Evan Weaver at middle linebacker, who is a All-American type player, and they were able to recruit a six foot six junior college recruit, uh, Coin Dang, uh, out of uh, junior college, four-star guy. He was on the Last Chance U series. Um, I mean, he's been an instant addition. Those two guys in the middle have been fantastic. Uh, they do have a lot of options at outside linebacker, too. They suffered a few injuries. Uh, I'm not sure if any of those are too major, but from last weekend. And then, uh, based on relative terms, the defensive line is kind of the weakness. Uh, they came into fall camp missing two of their nose tackles, and neither one of those guys still have shown up. Uh, haven't really been too clear about why that is, what's going on with those two guys, but. They basically had to convert some of their veteran defensive ends into nose players and rely on a couple of true freshmen to contribute as well. So the defensive line has been a little bit of a sore spot. But I would say the last three games, though, they were all three teams that would have liked to have gone to the pass first. And I think they caused enough problems to where they made them a little one-dimensional and had to focus on the run a little bit. Offensively, you mentioned Cal not kind of being 
very pedestrian, particularly in the passing game, wanting to run the football. When Cal is at its best offensively, it is doing what? Um, scoring in the mid-20s, <laughs> which is uh, not the greatest either. But they do like to run a bit of a spread, about three receivers, a tight end and a running back in their base form. And, um, you know, they, they still run the ball quite a bit out of that set. Uh, Chase Garbers at quarterback, he's only a sophomore, retro sophomore, and he's still a little fresh as a, a starter, but he has his moments. Um, but the offensive line has taken some shots injury-wise. There's at least two guys out for the year. They were missing a third and a fourth <laughs> last weekend, and you could tell not only in the running game, but just forcing Garbers not to have much of a pocket he was really on the run a lot. Uh, I believe he ran 18 times, including sacks. He was throwing the ball, uh, but only completed nine passes. So it's an offense that, I mean, it's been up and down. They have some spurts here or there, but we haven't seen 60 minutes out of them. Uh, their best version of the Cal offense has been running the ball and, and grinding it out with running back Christopher Brown first and then Marcel Dancy second. And right now, if the, the Bears are down a few offensive linemen, and Christopher Brown, who left with an arm shoulder injury in last week's game, his status is a little uncertain right now. Uh, that could spell trouble for Cal this weekend. As far as Justin Wilcox goes, he's an interesting story to me because he wasn't overly successful as a defensive coordinator at USC, but has turned into a really, really good head coach. And... You know, where do you think he's at in building this program amongst the Cal fan base? What is kind of the temperature on Wilcox and where this whole thing is headed? Yeah, I think Coach Wilcox, maybe not just from the USC spot, but just his overall resume was about time for him to be a head coach. Uh, I recall, uh, as you mentioned, I covered Fresno State as well, and he was the defensive coordinator at Boise State for a good four-year run when you know, they were just dominating everyone in the whack at that time and I was really impressed by him and he's made four power five defensive coordinator stops since then uh, as a head coach I've also been pretty impressed and I think what I've been impressed most with is as a first year head coach he's assembled a really good group of assistants and they've all pretty much hung around with him for the last three years uh, defensively he's got Tim Deruder who I covered as the head coach um at Fresno State, and he's more of a defensive coordinator mastermind. And with him, with Gerald Alexander, who I mentioned in the secondary, uh, they've got Peter Thurman, who's a big-time linebackers coach. They've just built this crazy defense and defensive staff, and that's really what's been keeping this team afloat <laughs> above 500 for the last year plus now. Uh, offensively, they've actually got some pretty good names as well, and some veteran coaches, but just hasn't been there yet and kind of the, the deal with Wilcox right now is that they need that offense to get over the hump and to, to make this team a contender because again Cal was projected to finish fifth in the Pac-12 West this season or the North this season excuse me and for a year three guy I mean I think Cal fans are a little disgruntled maybe by that fact you know they're kind of tired of this team not competing for the Rose Bowl or anything for a good decade or so since Jeff Tedford really had a role in in the 2000s. And they, Wilcox could be that guy, but until the offense gets there, there's just kind of a, a void that this program hasn't quite filled yet. 
at the risk of this sounding like a dumb, cliched question, but I remember when I went out to when Ole Miss went out there in seventeen. I did a radio hit. I don't remember where, somewhere in the Bay Area. But the guy was just kind of busting my balls, being like, "Yeah, so college football, something we do when we're not at the beach." Obviously, you know, joking, but it is it is different out there than it is in the South, and obviously, ton more to do in the Bay Area. Beautiful place, you know, you know, South Mississippi, and there's no real pro sports. That's kind of this is kind of it for a lot of people. As far as the Cal fan base, is it difficult? Like, do you is it kind of like USC in the sense, not comparing the two programs, but do you need to win big to get people fully on board and fully interested? What is that kind of dynamic like amongst the fan base and the success rate of the program? Yeah, that's kind of the thing there. You've got to be winning and you've got to have big matchups and, and all those things come together to get those sellout crowds. Uh, for example, Cal goes to Washington in week two and gets that big upset win. Uh, they start 2-0. and They just barely missed the top 25 last week, and they only bring in 35,000 or 36,000 for their game against North Texas on Saturday. Um, so, I mean, I think a lot of teams, a lot of fan bases would have been pretty amped coming off of a, a win like that that they had against Washington. But um, you get a team that's not a big name and uh, just doesn't bring out the fans. There's just a whole lot of competition for eyeballs and butts and seats around the Bay Area. And everything's got to come together to get that big crowd. I think if um, if Cal can get this win at Ole Miss, they come home next week uh, against Arizona State for a Friday night ESPN game. Maybe people will start to to roll and get on board with with that. But uh, yeah, again, until the Cal's in a position where they're competing for a, a Pac-12 title and a Rose Bowl, I don't think they quite get over that hump and get the big crowds that they're hoping to have. Yeah, that, you kind of you kind of hit on it a second ago, but my next question was really, how do they view this game? I mean, is this a springboard game? Because Ole Miss has you know, had all kinds of trouble as a program the last three years, whether it's the NCAA stuff. They're kind of, they're really paying the NCAA bar tab this year in the sense that, like, you know, they're back to the full 85, but it's a young football team. The offensive tie to the offensive talent on that side of the ball is kind of left. Very young offense. I mean, this is kind of starting over for Matt Luke in a lot of senses. How does Cal view this game? I mean, is this one that you obviously you expect to win in some senses because they are the ranked team, but at the same time, like, will this win move the needle like you just kind of hit on? Yeah. You know, it's, um, I think it's the game a lot are maybe going uneasy into. I think anytime a team from out here plays an SEC program, regardless of if it's Alabama or Vanderbilt, there's a, a bit of a, an uneasiness and uh, nervousness because those teams always seem to be tougher and more well-coached than you would expect. Um, it's a, a kind of a different level than what you see out here and the fan base and everything. Uh, it's just kind of a different animal. Um, I think there's a lot of excuses that Cal could have to lose this game, so if they do fall, um, it might not be totally unexpected, but Again, they they really need to keep the momentum rolling, and they know it is a winnable game. Um, there's just a few elements. They need that offense to click well enough to get the, the victory. And uh, I mean, all Cal fans expect the defense to hold tough, but when it comes to the offense, you never really know. As far as Chase Garbers goes, you mentioned redshirt sophomore. You would think this is about the time in a career where you would kind of maybe take a next step forward. What is the next thing for his development? I mean, is it a higher completion rate? What is it kind of him that's hindering him for maybe kind of the offense becoming a bit more of a consistent vertical passing threat? 
Yeah, I think it, it's partly him and it's part offense as a whole. Um, it's just kind of surprising in year three that they don't have a more reliable group of players. Uh, you know, at wide receiver, they basically rotate uh, maybe six plus guys in and out. There's not really a, a bunch of go to targets. Maybe that'll show itself by the end of the season, but. Um, I mean, there's a lot of guys rotating in and out, and there's not a whole lot of completion. So there's no really receivers putting up big numbers. Um, there's no, I mean, they're replacing a lot of players at tight end and running back and wide receiver this season. And the offensive line was supposed to be the one spot. They had a reliable group of returners, and a bunch of those guys have fallen down already with injuries. So it's just kind of been across the board. Uh, I think Garbers has done a good job just managing the game, at least. I mean, those were three games realistically they lost all three of those and he did enough at least to get the wins uh, you could have had maybe another quarterback in there that could have won those games more comfortably but uh, Garbers did do enough with his legs and uh, with his arm at least to get those wins and uh, if he keeps doing that fans can kind of <laughs> accept the, the W's that there'll, there'll be no problem if he's doing just enough to get victories but I think eventually it's going to catch up to them and after Ole Miss, I believe it's four out of five weeks. They have ranked Pac-12 teams on the schedule. So, I mean, this is a six-game stretch where he's either going to take a step up or people are going to get really frustrated with the offense. Kind of in closing here, how do you see this going? Because I've struggled to get a feel for it. It's interesting to me because I think Ole Miss, if their passing game looks – I mean, unless it looks remarkably better than it has the first three weeks, Cal's going to make them pay for a lot of mistakes. There were a lot of balls last week against Southeastern Louisiana. Should have been picked, will definitely be picked by a Cal secondary of that caliber. You know, a little susceptible against the run. And then on the flip side, Ole Miss's defense is somewhat improved, and Cal's not exactly a juggernaut offensively. How do you see this going? Yeah, I think to see, I see this one being a bit of a grind and a battle, uh, a low-scoring one for sure. Um, you know, Cal has seen three really good passing games the last three weeks, so I think they're going to be well prepared for what Ole Miss has there. Um, running wise, as long as they can keep their front seven healthy, they should be able to, to manage Ole Miss's running game as well. Um, but again, on Cal's offensive side, uh, they they had a, a spark of 20 points in the first quarter last week, and they only managed three the rest of the game against North Texas. You could just tell. That offensive line was having trouble keeping Garbers comfortable. They weren't running the ball extremely effectively. And if that continues going into SEC country, it's going to be a long day for the Cal offense. So I, I definitely expect to see a lot of defense from both sides in this game. And, uh, my hunch is that Cal is going to do just enough on offense to get the win. I think their defense is the best unit of the, the both teams as far as offense and defense goes. And I think... That'll be enough to get them over the hump, but I mean, this game could really go either way. And again, it's just going to be one of those games where a pick six here or a kick return there could be enough to swing the game, and it really puts it up to chance for either side at that point. I definitely tend to agree with you. I just don't think I've seen enough from the Ole Miss offense to trust them enough to make enough plays to win. Because it's like with Cal, you at least kind of know what you're getting more to where Ole Miss has been a hell of a mystery through the first three games. Um, Jackson, I really appreciate your time. This was great stuff. Um, should be a fun one Saturday. Should be a warm one. But, again, I really appreciate your time, and thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely.
And that was Jackson Moore. I really appreciated his time. It was honestly kind of hard finding a Cal beat writer. I know they have a rivals guy. I couldn't really figure out who covers them for any newspapers. As you heard him talk about it, one of the more interesting things I got into, as you heard me say, I was like, look, I did a radio hit when Ole Miss went out there in 17 with some Bay Area station. And the guy was just kind of busting my balls like, so football is kind of something we do when we're not surfing. What's it like for Mississippi football fans? Of course, <laughs> I started laughing, but I kind of parlayed that into if you're Justin Wilcox, you've been to a bowl game each year, first two years, you've got them ranked in the top 25 again. They've kind of flirted out in and out of the top 25 at certain points in his short tenure. But out there is different world, man. There's umpteen billion sports teams. You got Stanford. You got all kinds of stuff. There's a lot of competition for eyeballs, and so if you don't win big and have a lot of marquee matchups on your schedule, people aren't going to come and people aren't going to care. I mean, you heard him cite, you know, they had a huge road win at, at Washington last week and then brought 35,000 people to the North Texas name. Not granted, North, North Texas stinks, and that's a trend all across the country as far as college football attendance, but his point is still valid. And so I found that interesting, kind of how Wilcox is going to keep people invested, how Cal fans are kind of tired of not competing, or at least being in the conversation of winning the Pac-12 and going to the Rose Bowl. They're kind of waiting to take the next jump. It was interesting to hear his thoughts on that. Of course, the kind of stuff that we went over, too, as far as the game matchup. I really appreciate his time. Um, I would trade jobs with him in a heartbeat because it is gorgeous out there year-round. Yeah. It is as someone that is currently sitting in the Mississippi heat, it is not what I would constitute as gorgeous here right now. Yeah, exactly. And so, <laughs> I don't know. I appreciated his time. I thought he gave a lot of good insight. I actually kind of agree with him. It wouldn't shock me if Ole Miss won this game. It wouldn't. But I just haven't seen enough to trust the Ole Miss offense to feel good about being like, hey, Ole Miss is going to win this game. Because he he described it as a grinded-out game. He thinks Cal does just enough offensively, and the defense creates a couple of turnovers to them to sneak out with a win. Again, I could be convinced either way on this, but I tend to side with his line of thought because I just haven't seen enough from Ole Miss's offense to, to trust that they're going to make enough plays to win the game because that's eventually what this is going to come down to. Yeah, that's certainly fair. Um you know, Cal's a team that beat North Texas by six. North Texas isn't your normal North Texas. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Latrell's having a pretty down year. They got rocked by South uh, SMU. I don't know. I, I think it's two pretty even football teams on a home field for Ole Miss. I think if you put it on a neutral field, Cal's look a, bit, a little bit better. Um, in Oxford at 11 a.m., 9 a.m. Cal time, I think Ole Miss is probably about even. Um, I did see an interesting stat. Not necessarily this would you know make me pick Ole Miss. Uh, Ole Miss is now a two point favorite. I think since 2015, when ranked teams go on the road as an underdog, they are five and eighteen. Um, so that 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 was interesting to me. I think if my if a gun to my head, I pick Ole Miss. But man, I, you can tell me that this is a ten to seven cow win, and I'm not shocked at all. Like there's there's very little in this game that would shock me besides the shootout. Yeah, I would say a blowout either way would shock me as well. I yeah. think this would be a close grind-out game. Gun to my head, I'd pick Cal, but again, I could be convinced either way. Just because I haven't, I, I know what I'm getting with Cal to a degree. I don't know what I'm getting with Ole Miss. And so that's kind of my line of thought there. Um, and with the, the weather's been talked about all week a lot. We asked Matt Corral about it yesterday. The weather and the time, 
you know, an Ole Miss guy, uh, as I was kind of discussing it with some people, described it to me this way, you know, they're going to be playing a game or getting ready for a game at 4 o'clock in the morning their time, kind of, 4.30. You get up at 6.30 for an 11 a.m. kick. Even if you tell those kids to go to bed early, if you take a college kid's cell phone at 8.30 at night on a Friday night in a hotel room, are they going to fall asleep or are they going to stare at the wall for three hours? What would you do? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, would you, I mean, what would you, which what one would you do? It's going to be hot. It's going to be miserable. Um, would you, they're not going to be used to it. I, I think it's, I think, I think to say it doesn't mean anything uh, is naive. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think they're the playing at 11 a.m., I think that's going to matter some. Uh, you ask a college kid if they'd rather do something at midnight or 5 a.m., I promise you they're going to answer midnight. So I think it's a little bit naive to, to say that it doesn't matter. Um, but I don't think it's an overbearing thing either. Like, the, at the end of the day, they are college kids. After about the middle of the first quarter, that's where I would be interested if I was Ole Miss. If you have opportunities in the first quarter, take advantage of them. Um, because maybe Cal's a little dreary right then. But, you know, by the middle of the third quarter, I'm not sure that it's actually going to matter a whole lot. But I think it could early in the game. Yeah, I agree, but the way that was described to me was interesting. What would you do? Like, would you stare at the wall or be able to fall asleep? I think I would fall in the stare at the wall category. I don't think I could go to sleep at 8.30 with no phone just laying there. Oh, they're, they're going to take their phone? Well, I mean, I think a lot of times when teams stay in hotels and they have curfews and stuff, they may or may not, but this was just the way it was being described to me. I found it kind of interesting. Oh, dear God. Like, if, no, no if you're just, I, if you're just, but, but that, besides the point, if you're just sitting there and your, you know, curfew is 8.30 or whatever, are you going to fall asleep at 8.30? No. <laughs> I'm going to fall asleep at 1 a.m. like I always do. Yeah, exactly. So I think that makes a difference. Uh, Matt Corral didn't think, seem to think the time made as much of a difference, but he was like, look, man, I'm not going to lie to you. The heat is different. <laughs> no, the, the heat is different, man. He was like, look, it's you know practice 70 and sunny out there with no humidity. It's a hell of a lot different coming here when it's 80 degrees at 6 o'clock in the morning and even hotter when you practice it too and the humidity gets to you. So that'll be interesting. Again, at the same time, you just line it up and play football. I mean, it, 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 I don't think it'll make a huge difference even if it makes one, but I just found that perspective interesting. That's about all I got as far as that for right now. We'll get into it some on Friday. Of course, we'll take mailbag Friday questions and all that. Um, not a ton else going on in the news, I don't think. I mean, we had a Monday night football game that was atrocious Buddy, since the last time we Ole talked. Miss is, Ole Miss is greatest player ever. His career is probably over. Yeah, we'll get into that some as well. That's true. So, Eli Manning benched. I get it, man. Eli is a wounded fighter. He doesn't have a whole lot left. I I go to that Funhouse account, the one that makes fun of Mike Francesa over and over yeah. again. And I don't agree with Mike Francesa a lot, obviously. I mean, he's he's... I mean, when you lose your fastball and talk radio, there's no hiding it. People know you've lost your fastball. And with all due respect to that guy, he's lost his fastball. But he made a good point. Is like he thinks Eli deserves better in the sense of like you bench this guy after 15 years and there's no statement from the owner John Mara. There's no statement from Dave Gettleman. Are they really going to be in hiding all day? If you want to bench him, bench him. That's fine. But like, come on. And he was like, look, the Giants not only like are handling this the wrong way, they forgot how to be Giants. I think is how he described it. Again, it's a business. You need to see what you young have. You need to move on from Eli. But I thought he had an interesting point about like. There was no statement from the owner. There was no statement from Dave Gettleman. There was nothing. I mean, 15 years, two Super Bowls. I'm not one to like be like, they handled this in a not-classy way. People can do whatever they want. I just found that as an interesting point that I kind of think is valid. Why, why did they need to start him for two games to figure out they were bad? 
Like I, that, that's the part that bewildered me. Well, I, I think if they beat Buffalo in their if they beat Buffalo and they look competent against Buffalo and Dallas, I think they would have preferred to Eli start a little bit and Daniel Jones to come along. Like I think if they beat Buffalo, they're one and one and they look okay. I think he's still the starter. Yeah, but I could have looked at that team, man, and that team is not making the playoffs. Like I could have told you that in August. How were they that dumb? Like how did they not look at this this team and this awful defense and figure out? Okay, we're gonna go six and twelve at best. Why not just put the kid in? Like I, I kind of just feel like maybe this decision could have been made a few months ago. That's fair. And then you get into the hot take sports topic debate of whether Eli's a Hall of Famer. I tend oh, to God, yes. I tend to lean yes. You know, two time Super Bowl champion. I mean, he's top a ten in passing yards, passing completion, uh, passer rating. Y- yes. <laughs> I mean, He's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I know, but it's interesting. Is it's a complexing argument. It's a complex argument because again, you bring up all those stats. There's only one or two seasons in his entire career where he finished top ten in single season in three or four of those statistics across the board. That was his best year in 2010. He's a 500 career starter. Again, not 100 percent his fault. It is a complicated legacy in some senses because after Tom Coffin left, you know, McAdoo was kind of a fool. He had a bad offensive line, didn't have a ton around him. He hasn't been given the greatest like coaching help, weapons, whatever you want to call it, since Tom Coughlin left. Again, at the same time, he's gotten old and he's regressed. It's a complicated legacy, but at the same time, his peak was only three or four years, but he won two Super Bowls and that peak was really good, and I think that should matter even if it wasn't as long as you're accustomed to see other quarterbacks go. So I think he's a Hall of Famer. But at the same time, if there's someone that's vehemently against a career 500 quarterback being a Hall of Famer, I'm not going to scream at him. Is this even an argument, though, if his last name isn't Manning and he's not compared to his brother? Like, I don't. I think that does play into itself. Maybe, but you could probably argue he would have been benched sooner if his last name wasn't Manning a little bit. Granted, two well, Super Bowls sure, gives I mean, you a lot of clout. From a Hall of Fame perspective, I mean, everybody compares him to Peyton. He's not Peyton, but... Man, there's like two dudes that are as good as Peyton that have played the game. And one of them still play it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's fair. I think he's a Hall of Famer. I do. I just, I get other people. I just, there's a lot of takes, debates or whatever where the other side of it, I'm just like, these people are asinine. And this one, I get, I see valid points as to why you'd point to the contrary because he has done some damage to his legacy the last couple of years. How much of that is his fault is a whole other debate. But people are going to remember a lot of the bad years, Eli, because the good years are so long ago, and that's kind of part of the society we live in nowadays. It's like, what have you done for me lately? At the same time, I think his overall resume is a pro football Hall of Fame-worthy resume. So that's kind of yeah, where I stand on it. Absolutely. I mean, they played Eric Flowers for five years or something, man. Like, he was getting killed back there. It, I mean, I get, I get what people are saying. You know, he, his peak's only four years, and but he won two Super Bowls. He beat the 18 and 0 Patriots. Like, I... Maybe I'm a little biased. I'm not going to sit here and lie to you. I mean, Eli Manning is my first memory of, of football. But uh, I, I, to me, it just kind of seems like a first ballot guy. That'll be interesting to watch. I don't necessarily see Eli going and playing somewhere else. No, he told him he didn't want to. Yeah, I think he just rides off into the sunset. Look, man, he's 38 or whatever, however the hole he is. It's a hell of a career. He, you play at that high of a level for that long in the NFL, that's a hell of a career. Eli really has nothing to prove left to anybody, and I hope he's football happy. I hope there's nothing left he out there desires because even if guys have a lot of success, always feel for guys who retire as football miserable. I guess I'll put it as like Chris Paul 
if he never wins a title in basketball, he's had a hell of a career, but he's going to retire with a sense of misery, I think, on top of yeah. all the stuff he's done. And I just hope that's not the case for Eli. I hope he's kind of happy with everything that's happened, you know, everything he's done, and I hope he's I hope he's content and has peace of mind with it all in that sense. I would, I would venture to say he probably is. The, the two titles certainly help. Uh, look, he's obviously made a lot of money. He's a, he's a really good person. Uh, I, I, I would venture to say that Eli is happy with how his career played out. And maybe it didn't end like he wanted to, you know, being benched. But I'm interested, too. Does he play out the rest of the season or does he just call it off and let him sign a backup quarterback? I think both are possibilities. Yeah, so that'll be interesting to monitor. Um, that's about all I had for today. The Monday night football game was an atrocity. The you know, the Jets had every excuse. They're on the seven starters, third string quarterback. The Browns got a win, but they still got issues. I am not sold on them. Their schedule gets Mayfield's been bad. Yep, and their schedule gets incredibly tough going forward. At the same time, I kind of feel for Mayfield in the sense that he has a lot more talent around him, so his, the the expectation for him to progress quicker is is heightened as opposed to Darnold or Josh Allen or whatever. Like people are like saying, like I, I listened to Ryan Clark on SVP the other night, being like Baker Mayfield's just not turning into a top ten quarterback. It's like, whoa, bro, he's like nineteen games into his entire career. Like, like yeah, what, what are we doing fair, here? I, I think people were a little bit too quick on the hype train last year on him too. Yeah, but I think that had less to do with him and more so them winning six games or seven games with an organization that has been historically awful. Oh, that's, that's certainly fair. I mean, that, that defense is legit now. Yeah, they have a good defense. They, I'm not sold on them offensively. You're about to figure out if they're any good or not because they go Rams, Vikings, Patriots, something like that. They got a lot of contenders coming up is my Ooh, point. They're next, to figure out a way to go one and two. Their next five opponents are 10-0. and 0. So, yeah, you're about to find out. Anyway, that's all I've got today. i got to get to Jackson to cover this golf tournament. Uh, if you're going to be in the Jackson area and want to come out, say hello. We'll be doing the radio show. If you want to come yell at me, do whatever you want. It's a free country. But we'll be there um, for Friday as far as this podcast. Of course, people's holiday as always. Send us your mailbag questions. Tweet, uh, text, go find Bumble Guy for me. He disappeared. Um, whatever you want to do, we'll have some picks. We'll have all kinds of stuff. Your typical Friday podcast wrapping up the cow preparation. Unless you got anything else, I'm getting out of here. Sounds good. All right, well, for Colin Brister, I'm Brian Scott Rippey. We appreciate you listening. Like, subscribe, rate to the podcast. Really appreciate you guys continuing to listen. Give us feedback. Let me know what you like, don't like. Anyway, we'll be back at it on Friday. A Super Talk Mississippi yeah. media production.